Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson's and Movement Disorders Society. Today, we are going to discuss the paper titled The Role of Levodopa Challenge in Predicting the Outcome of Subthalamic Deep Brain Stimulation, which was recently published in Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. I have the pleasure to have two of the authors here, the junior author, Dr. Robin Volk, and the senior author, Professor Gunter Deutschel, both from the University in Kiel, Germany. Welcome and thank you very much for taking part in the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. For those listeners that are not familiar with the deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus, could you give us an overview of what are the main indications for this procedure and what are the main selection criteria for patients, the main inclusion and exclusion criteria? Well, DBS is not a new therapy. The first patient were operated 30 years ago almost. It's a therapy that has been investigated indeed over these 30 years. There were hundreds of controlled studies and the first double blind just appeared in 2020 on this treatment and they converge all on the conclusion that several patients have a very good outcome or can have a very good outcome. These are patients with advanced Parkinson's disease with fluctuations. So the fluctuations are one of the most important criteria to include a patient. The patients should have a good on. So in their on state, that is about what can be achieved with deep brain stimulation, should be in the order of stage two about of Parkinson's disease. The treatment does not only help with the motor part, it's also non-motor symptoms are improved to a certain extent. And it's well known that quality of life can improve dramatically with deep brain stimulation. And as a rule of thumb, a patient who receives deep brain stimulation and is well qualified for this treatment can gain about five years in his disease course when he or she are carefully selected. Therefore, selection plays a major role. I mean, as you said, selection is key in the outcome of deep brain stimulation. And there has been for many years the idea that levodopa responsiveness is going to determine the outcome of DBS. But this idea has been questioned and your manuscript raised questions about the best selection or how to determine levodopa responsiveness in candidates for DBS surgery. So in your manuscript, you have analyzed data from three different centers, from Kiel and Berlin in Germany and from Toronto in Canada, assessing how levodopa challenge can predict the outcome in people with subthalamic nucleus DBS. Can you give us an overview of the main results of the study and also touching on the methods as well, discussing a bit the sophisticated statistical methods that you have used to reach these conclusions? The levodopa test has become a standard test since the first publication in 2002 by Charles and colleagues from the Grenoble Group. I think worldwide, almost every center uses this test as an orientation whether a patient qualifies for this or not. There needs to be an objective proof and patients can tell you about their levodopa responsiveness during the taking the medical history. And this is already an, a very good orientation, but when you want to have closer data, clear data that can be documented, then you need to have the patient assessed. 
This is done almost in every DBS center. And therefore, data are available. And we joined together with Andrea Kühne from Berlin and Alfonso Fasano from Toronto, and also Hagai Bergman, who has been involved in these questions since the late 80s, whether the finding that was found so often that cohorts show a very close correlation, when you look at cohorts, a very close correlation between the levodopa test and the final outcome of the DBS surgery, there is a high correlation. But what does this say about an individual patient? And that was the question. So we would like to see a response that tells us, oh, this patient with a statistical reliability, an outcome that lies between this and that. And that would be excellent for advising the patient. We had these many data from Berlin, Toronto and Kiel, and that was the, the basis for these assessments. And I think how the transfer from the cohort of patients to an individual patient can be done statistically, that's probably something where you can comment on. We have this uh, very big data set consisting of 429 patients that underwent surgery. SDN-DBS surgery in three centers. And these patients also had early follow-up UPDS testing available. Early follow-up means there was a mean of 9.15 months in between the operation and the follow-up. And what we did first is exploring the data set. First, you look at the data and obviously what you want to do is try to reproduce the correlation that was found so many times before. So we correlated the UPDS3 reduction during the Levodopa challenge with the absolute UPDS3 reduction due to the DBS stimulation at early follow-up. And we found a significant correlation that actually almost exactly matches that one that was found by Charles et al. However, we were correlating further variables. So what do we have available? We had available also the UPDS3 without medication before the operation. So the UPDS3 in the off state at baseline. And this score also correlates significantly with the outcome. So the UPDS3 reduction after surgery in the early follow-up. So now we have three variables that seem to correlate with each other actually. And in order to investigate which variable is more important in this triangle, and we fitted a multivariate linear model just to describe the data set first. There's nothing about prediction yet. So what we found is that the preoperative UPDS3 in the off state seems to be more important for explaining this data set we have than the UPDS3 improvement due to levodopa. That's quite notable. And if you look then at the relative levodopa improvement and compared to the relative improvement to DBS stimulation, relative means relative to the UPDS3 in mid-off at baseline. And then this correlation that was found earlier actually shrinks very much. It's still significant, but it's very slight. So if I understand well, that means that this is severity measured by the UPDRS part three at baseline before the DBS is what it determines mostly the outcome after surgery. Is that correct? That's 
a correct conclusion, that the same conclusion you also had. So how can we imagine this? Probably those patients which suffer more severely from the disease have higher UPDS3 at baseline also have more room for improvement due to stimulation. This was actually the idea we had looking at this data. And you mentioned now moving into the prediction model. How can we predict in an individual how much he's going to improve with deep brain stimulation based on the assessment with the levodopa challenge? I should clarify what's the difference between this explanatory analysis we just explained and the predictive analysis. So the explanatory analysis is solely centered around the data set that we have. There's no new data that comes in and that we somehow can forecast. So prediction has a goal to forecast data that is unseen, that is not known yet. So patients come to the clinic and I want to predict how will the DBS outcome be. So for this, there are several approaches. Either I train a model like we just did and predict the outcome of the new patient coming into our department. However, a validation like this would take a lot of time and it might eventually fail. So it's quite unethical. So what we did is we used cross-validation to determine the predictive power of our models. Cross-validation means that the whole data set was cut into 10 equal parts and this 10 times. So ending up with a hundred chunks of data and each time we trained a model on nine parts of this data and validated it on the tenth part. So like this, if you then regard the model's fits, you get an estimate on how your model performs on unseen data on which it has not been trained on. So which models did we actually train? So there were several options. You could either try to predict the continuous variable of UPDS3 reduction due to SDN-DBS. So in this case, we trained a general linear model that was trying to predict the continuous variable. We also trained more sophisticated algorithms, which is a gradient boosting algorithm called XGBoost and support vector machine with a polynomial kernel. All those different models actually perform quite likewise resulting when trying to predict the UPDS3 reduction in absolute terms due to operation in a mean R-squared of 0.41 with quite a large range of this R-squared from 0.3.5 to 0.51. And likewise, we tried to predict the relative stimulation relative to the UPDS3 baseline. And this model all performed very badly. So they dropped down to 0.14. And another thing you could do with trying to improve the prediction for a person, the patient's not going to ask you, I want to know how my UPDS3 improves. They want to know, will I improve or will I not improve? What we did, we defined for the UPDS3 in total that a reduction of greater than 33% of one third would be a reasonable cutoff or the minimal clinically important change of five points in the UPDS3 score. This we also extended by regarding different subscores, by regarding the tremor, but maybe it goes a bit far here. So when we tried the same models on predicting the digitimized outcome, also the results were quite mediocre, so to say. So the goodness of a 
classification model that predicts MIS outcomes, so good response, bad response, can be measured with different measures, for example, accuracy, how many of the predicted patients were classified correctly, or you could use the receiver operating curve and the area under the curve, that's what we did, and we resulted in area under the curve of 0.66 for predicting the response greater than 33%. And now, what is also important to see, whom do you actually want to identify? So in SDN-DBS, luckily, most patients do respond quite well. That's why it's so valuable and successful. But you do want to predict who's not going to respond sufficiently due to the risks related to the operation as procedure itself. And in our case, we looked at the median specificity of our models. This means how many non-responders were correctly identified using our model. And here we only came up with a result of 0.47. So basically we could not identify the non-responders using our models. And also the more sophisticated models or the non-linear predictive models like the gradient boosting algorithms, like the support vector machines, did not improve these results. Excellent. Thank you for explaining so clearly the sophisticated analysis of the results. So those conclusions raise questions and have important clinical implications about the use of the Liverpool challenge in predicting or selecting patients for SDN-DBS. In the discussion, do you still think that assessing levodopa responsiveness is useful in the clinic? Or some may argue that probably that test is not needed, that we can determine how responsive a patient is based on the anamnesis. Maybe we shouldn't use the UPDRS. Maybe we should use all the tools or focus on some certain phenomenological aspects of the UPDRS to determine the outcome. What clinical implications do you take from this result. Maybe before we answer this question, a little disclaimer. So a data set that's very important to me to say there were no DOPA non-responders. So people that did not respond to levodopa at all or that did not have an indication for SDN-DBS. Mm -hmm. So we can actually not comment on this group of people that they were not included in our data mm -hmm. set. What we can comment on those people that had an indication for the SDN-DBS, so just like a little disclaimer mm -hmm. before we go into further discussion. <laughs> right, but in essence, it's levodopa challenge should be continued to be performed just because we need to exclude non-responders. Mm. The data that we have on non-responders are limited, but I think they are sufficient to say that levodopa non-responders do not respond to DBS. So. This is the most important point, first of all. Then we have to acknowledge that the prediction for an individual patient still remains very dubious. So how good a patient responds is not very clearly to determine. This is already known by the DBS centers, and they have more than this. We mentioned only the levodopa test, but we said about the best on, which is an important determining factor whether you ask the patients for or your oil which you check and in the future there may be more specific tests for example if a patient suffers particularly from freezing you have to look in a very detailed way how the freezing is influenced and we know already 
from freezing sub-studies that we have that this is a relatively good predictor for this particular symptom. And in the future, we probably will have more of these specific subtests that we use to make a prediction of which symptom will improve or not. And that is actually the way into a more personalized medicine that we are in. So exactly, I think Parkinson's disease is very heterogeneous now, and we are hopefully trying to disentangle that heterogeneity and then move towards a more personalized medicine. I don't have any other questions. I don't know if you want to discuss anything else or add anything about the paper. The conclusion is important for the people who are doing DBS. So for the physician working in clinical practice and not doing DBS, it's important that he or she cannot treat the patient adequately and that he knows he responds to levodopa. And the best on is in. For the centers, it's certainly a challenge to find better ways to assess dopa sensitivity in the future, and further studies will follow to do that. I will definitely have these conclusions in mind next time I see a patient and consider a referral to the DBS team. Thank you very much for your time and your discussion about the results, and thank you to the listeners, and I would encourage them to read the full paper in the Movement Disorders Clinical Practice Journal. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>